Take it. How's that? Does that sound better? You want me to start again? No, 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 I don't want to start again. So if you've got your Bible or a phone, I want you to try and stay with me. I do not expect that you'll all fully grasp everything I say this morning and I do not expect that you'll even understand everything I'm trying to say this morning, but I want you to understand something. This is an amazing, amazing book, which we've had a couple of weeks on already. Now, I've read a lot of books over the years. I reckon the title of this book is my favourite. It's called Following Jesus Without Embarrassing God. (laughs) Ever, Ever met a Christian who's embarrassed God? Have you ever embarrassed God by the way that you kind of live? Yeah, I have. But you know what? I reckon we are more likely to embarrass God by not taking books like Ecclesiastes and the whole wisdom literature seriously because this is the literature that grounds our faith. You get lost in the epistles, as wonderful as they are, and you'll finish up embarrassing God and everybody else. Oh, where are we going to start? Let let me just throw a couple of things out there first. Something about our culture. Uh, Have you noticed today how you, I, haven't got time for things to go wrong anymore? That's just a fact of life. Whether it's financial, we haven't got any margins financially, we haven't got any margins at our time. And so when things go wrong, it's kind of like panic stations. How am I going to deal with that? Can I say this gently? We're a bit like that with our faith. By the way, if I look like I'm squinting, those uh, floodlights are just about blinding me, but that's a, I feel like I'm on stage and I should sing or do something. Oh, that's better. Somebody's turned them down. Uh, it, it's a little bit like that in faith. We can get to a point where we need our faith to be neat and tidy. I might thought it was funny when Nick said, Uh, Neil was going to speak on some harsh realities and we don't have any songs for that. Isn't that funny? Shouldn't we have more songs about harsh realities? It's like, when do we grapple with the difficult and the complex? Because one of the other things I know about our culture, I know about me and I know about other people, is that we're obsessed with happiness. I mean, I speak to a lot of people uh, and they say, but you know, I just want one thing for my little boy or my little girl. I want them to grow up and be happy. And I feel like I'm this miserable old <laughs> Gringe who says, is that all you want for them? To be happy? Because I can tell you now If that is your number one goal for your child, they probably won't find it. Because happiness is a byproduct of something else. It's a byproduct of meaning. It's not until you discover what meaning is in life and your your place in the world that you start to, to find some happiness and joy and reason for being here. Now, I'm not going to go into it today, but Solomon in in chapter 2 of of Ecclesiastes tells you that he went after happiness. You can read it for yourself. In fact, in one verse, he says, I denied myself nothing, nothing. I refused my heart 
no pleasure. In other words, he heaped upon himself every happiness he could find, and his conclusion was this, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, and nothing was gained under the sun. Funny, isn't it? So here's the genius of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not about happiness. It's about meaning. Okay, you with me so far? Somebody ought to say to me, well, that doesn't make sense because how does the book of Ecclesiastes start? Everything is meaningless. So here's Neil coming up with this jewel of truth to say that life is about meaning and the Bible says that everything is meaningless. In fact, he ends the book on that as well, just in case you didn't get the point. So let me say this, just to comfort you, Ecclesiastes is not meant to confuse us. It's not meant to turn us into some catatonic saints who stare at the world with this glazed look and just look forward to heaven when we're all going to be happy. And somehow this life is just a mystery. Solomon is the rare place in the Bible where somebody confronts meaninglessness and says, what are you going to do now? Let me put it this way. Where is the meaning in meaninglessness? Do you see why sometimes we stop too quickly? Solomon's not writing this so that we can go away and think, what on earth am I a Christian for? He's saying, I want you to stare at the hardest place and see the meaningless of everything that is around us. And then what? In that meaninglessness. Man, I was hoping somebody would be here this morning who just walked off the street. They'd be saying, yeah, I always thought this is what Christians are on about. <laughs> Crazy people. Solomon sees life in the challenge. Now, one of the verses that uh, Swanee asked me to look at was Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 11. So flick over there if you've got it, uh, verse, chapter 9 and verse 11, and it says this, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or the wealthy or to the brilliant, or does favour come to the learned? But time and chance happen to them all. And Swanee said, I want you to speak on this thing called time and chance. Just take a breath for a moment. Funny things to be talking about in church. Chance. I had this sermon prepared on Thursday. And two things happened after I prepared it that just made me realise I need to keep grappling with this book. On Friday night, the police commissioner's son was involved in an accident and was placed on a life support system and he died last night at 7 o'clock. Our Premier stood up yesterday, Peter Manalouskas, 
And he looked into the camera and he said this. He said, here's a man who has spent 40 years of his life protecting us and keeping us from harm. And he could not protect his own son. It is so unjust. And we wept for him. And then Malinowskis went on to say this, our Premier, and I really related to this. He said, and I quote him, we so often find ourselves wishing that bad things don't happen to good people, but too often we find that is the case. Man, he could be here preaching our sermon this morning, couldn't he? Too often we find ourselves saying, God, surely that won't happen, and too often it does. Time and chance. Just maybe you're sitting there thinking, yes, but I'm a Christian. Maybe it's different for Christians. The other event that happened after I prepared this sermon is that our long time, one of our dearest friends, died yesterday. We've known them for 53 years. Lynn trained with Chris as a nurse. I milked the cows with David, played footy together. Chris was the only one on the planet that used to call me Mr. Newell Boys. They were dear friends. I have to tell you, Chris was one of those girls that made me feel a little bit like I was a heathen. She was so godly. Do you know people like that? She wasn't out there somewhere. She was kind. She was gentle. She was a woman of faith. And 12 months ago, she was diagnosed with the most horrendous cancer I could imagine. I won't go into details. It was awful. And she has endured 12 months of suffering and pain that I can't even get my head around. And mercifully, she died yesterday time and chance see somehow as a Christian we don't want to go there we don't want to be a number on the wheel of fortune that says when's my number going to come up or a monopoly board where we take a card and we find out that actually life can throw up some horrible things to me as it does to, to anybody else and that's what Solomon said the fast guys don't always win the race just ask Stephen Bradbury. You know, the, the people who have got everything don't always win. I mean, the world went into shock recently when Matthew Perry died, and we understand that. We, we kind of think that Matthew Perry's, these comedians, these great people somehow are going to avoid life's complications, and they don't. And it's almost mystifying to us that he spent half his life in rehab. You know, in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 10, we can get a sense of the frustration because Solomon says that God has set eternity in the hearts of every one of us. So here's the problem we have. We're built for eternity. We're built for a bigger picture. We're built for bigger understanding. And yet we're trying to live with what's happening right under our nose.
we innately understand as humans we were made for more than eat, drink and merry for we die. I mean, I take countless funerals of people and every one of them ask me, well, what's happening now? It's inside of us to know that life somehow has got to be bigger than that. Here's one of our problems. Here's where we need wisdom. Eternity doesn't look that attractive now. It just doesn't. Temporal stuff looks much more attractive. We think faith saps the present life of joy. That's why we often find ourselves doing silly things. You know, a couple of years ago, I, I took the grandkids into town and we went into H&M. You all know H&M? It, what is it? It's uh, what is it? What do you call it? It's um, a general store like Meyer. Clothing store. Right? It's what? Apartment store, yeah. Just clothing. Gee, that was hard work, wasn't it? Anybody else want to add anything to what H&M is? Limey, Charlie. Sorry I asked. <laughs> I'll be given stern instruction when I get home, I can tell you. Anyhow, I lost Eli. And I thought I'd better go and find him. So I went and I finally found Eli. And you know what he was doing? He was running up the down escalator. <laughs> and he was running down the up escalator. And you should have seen the look on his face. He was having the time of his life in H&M. And I said to him, Eli, what are you doing, man? He said, Pa, this is fun. <laughs> and it just dawned on me, I thought, isn't that what, without getting too theological, isn't that what sin has done to us? It's turned us upside down and we think going up the down escalator is the way to live. It actually makes wise people stupid. <laughs> uh, like it's hard being wise when you can have more fun being stupid, isn't it? It's kind of what Solomon's saying. Man, stop thinking like this is it. <laughs> stop thinking like someone who's born for eternity and everything that God has wanted to put in your heart and you're living in this little cone that thinks that life revolves around you being happy and running down up escalators and up down escalators. Have a look at Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 13. Ecclesiastes, let me read this. This has probably been a verse I've quoted more than any other verse in Ecclesiastes. It says this, Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Man. Who are the people here who can live with crooked? Not many? Andrew, you can. In fact, both Andrews can, I think. You know, when something's on a wall and it's not hanging straight, what do you do? Well, you straighten it. Crooked is horrible. Hmm? I mean, 
We've all heard of Murphy's Law. I don't know if you know, but there's a whole bunch of other laws like this. There's the Law of Mechanical Repair. Do you know that one? It says this. After your hands become coated with grease, your nose will begin to itch. (laughs) That's a law. Then there's the Variation Law. You know this one. It says, if you change lines in the traffic, the one you were in always moves faster than the one you've moved into. What about the law of biomechanics? The severity of the itch is inversely proportional to the reach. <laughs> See, you know that. What about this one? It's the last one. Brown's law of physical appearance. If the clothes fit, they're ugly. <laughs> I like that. So what we're saying is we all know the law of the way things should be, but then there are laws that defy the law. Things are crooked. I can't reach the itch. You know, it's interesting because in my lifetime, there's been a rise in new age philosophical thought that's brought a widespread acceptance of this thing called karma. Anybody tell me what karma is, just very briefly? Peace? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Let me put it in simple terms. If you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. And do you know what karma, dare I say it, has even snuck its way into the church? If you listen to a lot of preaching, subtly underneath the preaching is this sense that God rewards those who do the right thing. Do you know, I don't find that in the Bible. What I do find is that the Bible calls us to follow Jesus. The Bible calls us to trust God. The Bible calls us to be people who name the name of God as integral to our life. That's what it calls us to. And the Bible tells us that I will be with you no matter where you are. There's no karma in the Bible. In fact, it's an anathema in the Bible because the Bible says the only good thing that ever happened, we didn't do. Jesus did it. And we accept that by faith. You know what Solomon says, and this is what I've had to grapple with. Have a look again in that verse. It says, Who can straighten what God has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Now, I'm not even going to try and explain that. You can go home and think about that. But what I am trying to say is that in the good and the bad, Solomon says, I still saw God in the midst of it. That's pretty heavy. Because our natural thinking says, if it's good, God is in it. If it's bad, God is not in it. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of, of going to India. I need to let you know, the very first biography that I ever read was the story of William Carey, the father of modern mission, went to India in Serampore in 1793. William Carey finished up translating the Bible into 44 languages and dialects. He was a modern genius in his time of languages. 
<clears throat> and just to go to Serampore and walk around the place where William Carey worked and ministered was breathtaking for me. I even went to the cemetery where William Carey was buried. I remember it because it's got a big sign that said, keep out. And that's not good enough for a little country boy. So we scaled the wall and went over into the cemetery and there's William Carey's grave. It just is like a mausoleum. He was revered so much. And then I walked around the cemetery and I saw this plot that was overgrown. In fact, I couldn't even read the bloke's name. But somebody had put this man's story on that grave. And I discovered this man, whoever he was, wanted to come out from England and help William Carey reach Indians for Jesus. And this man got on a boat and spent eight months travelling to Serampore. And five days before he got to Serampore, he contracted smallpox and he died two days after he landed in Serampore. Isn't it funny? I'd spent all of my life, my Christian life, wanting to be like William Carey. I used to tell people like that. I just want to be like William Carey. And I stood at the end of this overgrown plot and I remember saying, God, I actually want to be like this man. Why? He had nothing to show. He didn't translate one language, one dialect. And his life wasn't measured by how much he did. And I'm not down crying William Carey. I'm saying he was a man who had nothing to show. And he's prepared to say, God, I'm willing to serve you even when there's nothing in it. And I can't see what's happening around me. That's what Solomon's trying to get at. Verse 17 and 18. We better start wrapping this up. Have a, have a look at this. Do not be over wicked. This is still in chapter 7. Do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. It's a funny thing to say, isn't it? Don't be over wicked because it'll kill you. Don't be over righteous because that'll kill you too. You know, I reckon preachers have been trying to find a way to say this for years and they don't know how to put it. Solomon just says it. I mean, we know that stupidity kills us. Stupidity breaks up families. It causes accidents. It destroys business. Stupidity will, will kill off all sorts of good things. But what about over-righteousness? supercilious self-righteous people who live in their own supercilious self-righteous world and they're a nuisance to our world instead of being light and salt you know what i'm talking about good times bad times god has made both And here's where I want to start to draw this to a conclusion. Wisdom discovers that God is in the light and in the dark. 
That's what he's saying all the way through this book, in the good times, in the bad times. God is in the simple, he's in the complex. God is where everything makes sense and God is where nothing makes sense. You know, our world today has rejected faith largely because it's irrational. We've, we've matured in our thinking in the 21st, 22nd century. Faith is irrational. But have you noticed how there's nothing to put in its place? We haven't replaced faith with anything. People would say we have science and I have the utmost respect for science but science doesn't live in the dark place. Science doesn't live in the irrational place where nothing else fits. Do we understand that that was the point of faith? Faith says God comes in in the dark places where nothing else can exist. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this this morning, but in the darkest place that Grant Stevens and his wife Emma are in today, God can be with them. That's been the heart of faith ever since the cross. Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and he said, Father, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? But then he says something strange. He says, but nonetheless, not my will, but yours be done. So one minute he's saying, you've left me. And then he's saying, but I'll do whatever you want. Why? Because God lives in the dark. That's the whole point of the incarnation. The God of heaven, of light and life came into a world that was dark and broken and impossible. And God says, I dwell there. That's kind of where I live. God is in the irrational. Let me finish with this. To me, one of the most moving musicals I've ever watched is Les Miserables. You know that story, don't you? About this man who was jailed for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. I often think as a little boy, I would have never seen the light of day. <laughs> but French society said to this man, you are a misfit, you're a criminal, and you will spend 19 years in jail for stealing a loaf of bread. When he got out of jail, he was bitter and he wanted to take it out on French society. And when he finally got lodging overnight in a Roman Catholic uh, home with the priest, you know what he did? He stole the priest's silverware. Now, eventually, he got caught, <clears throat> and the police took him back to the Roman Catholic priest. And the Roman Catholic priest comes out with the last two bits of silverware and he gives them to Valjean, Val, Val, Jean Valjean. <laughs> I got there eventually. <laughs> he gives them to him as if to say, you know that I gave you all this stuff, but you left two of them behind. And he is absolutely stunned. And in that moment, 
that one act of mercy, Valjean's bitterness, is broken. See, when he came out of jail, all he wanted was fairness and justice. What he finished up getting was grace and mercy. And that's the, that's the story of Ecclesiastes. It's the story of the gospel. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of the power of redemption that God says, I can come into those places where no one else can go. Nobody. And I can redeem that. I can redeem it because you are mine. And that's why he finishes in chapter 12 and he says, after all of this, there's only one thing to say. Have reverence for God and obey his commands because this is all that we were created for. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the complexity of it. And yet in the complexity of it, we find an authenticity. We find a harsh reality that we need to find if we're to find the God of eternity. We think we find you in the happy places, in the successful places, where everything's going well and everything makes sense. And yet your word says better off to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting because there's something about darkness that makes us seek the light. There's something about darkness that makes us want to know, is there more? Is there a reality that our world can't give us? And I thank you that Jesus came into the world, the light of the world, because where there is light... It dispels all darkness. And I pray for us this morning, as we seek to make sense of our world, as we hear of tragedies, as we hear of war, as we see brokenness, as we attend funerals of friends, I pray that in these places we will seek you with all of our heart and to know that you are there as well. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.